Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. When Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito's draft opinion overturning Roe v. Wade leaked earlier this month, it became clear that the United States is heading towards an historic moment, the rolling back of a right afforded to the people for half a century. The U.S. isn't the only nation undergoing an historic transition with respect to abortion rights. Just three months ago, February of this year, Colombia's constitutional court also issued a momentous decision, that one decriminalizing abortion for the first time since 1980. Prior to 1980, abortions were already extremely restricted in Colombia. They'd been legal only to save a woman's life. Between 1980 and 2006, abortion was banned outright there. February's decision changes all that. Remarkably, Americans and Colombians possess highly similar opinions about abortion. A 2021 Gallup poll found that 80% of Americans believe abortion should be legal in any circumstance or with certain restrictions. Only 20% of Americans polled by Gallup last year thought abortion should be illegal in all circumstances. Similarly, in Colombia, The nonpartisan firm Ipsos found that 82% of Colombians support abortion with certain restrictions. Only 18% opposed all abortions. Yet in the U.S., Justice Alito's draft decision makes it clear he believes abortion rights are not protected by the Constitution and are not, quote, deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition. Whereas in Colombia, Judge Alberto Rojas Rios, who wrote his court's ruling, said decriminalizing abortion is a step toward self-determination for Colombian women. In fact, abortion access has been expanding across much of the rest of the world. Since 2000, more than 30 countries have expanded access, several in historically conservative Catholic Latin America, including Mexico and Argentina. Only a few countries are rolling back abortion access, including Nicaragua, Poland, and the United States. So today, we're going to try to understand that divergence. Jack Beatty, On Point News Analyst, is with us. Hello, Jack. Hello, Magna. And Michelle Oberman, professor of law at Santa Clara University in Palo Alto, California, and author of Her Body, Our Laws on the Front Lines of the Abortion War from El Salvador to Oklahoma. Professor Oberman, welcome to you. Thanks for having me, Megna. So, Jack, I actually want to turn to you first because I'd like to start off focusing on the United States and this moment in particular. Given that global context that I just laid out, I mean, how do you read... um, the, you know, the implication and, uh, and uh, effect of Justice Alito's draft decision. 
Well, uh, Gavin Newsom, the Democratic governor of California, reacted to the news of um, the draft opinion uh, portending the end of Roe by saying, like, where the hell is my party? And I want to pick up on that, the failure of the Democrats to protect their base voters, African-Americans and uh, pro-abortion rights women. You know, the upcoming Senate vote to codify abortion rights like the earlier vote to protect black voting rights, it's going to founder on the filibuster, specifically on the votes of two Democratic senators. A president's power is the power to persuade, wrote Richard Neustadt in his classic study, Presidential Power. President Biden failed to persuade Senators Manchin and Cinema, first to protect black voting rights and now abortion rights. Did he try? Is he capable of sustained argument? A recent interview with Heather Cox Richardson shows a man unable to stick to his, the point, his mind dominated by grief for his dead son. But, but the Democrats' failure goes well beyond Biden. Consider this record. President Eisenhower lobbied Chief Justice Warren to go easy of the, on the South ahead of the Brown v. Board decision. He had Warren to dinner with the court, rep, with the lawyer representing the segregated Topeka schools. LBJ persuaded Justice Goldberg to step down from the court so he could appoint his crony, Abe Fortas, promising the U.N. ambassadorship to Goldberg to appoint Thurgood Marshall to the high court. LBJ maneuvered Justice Tom Clark to retire by naming Clark's son, Ramsey, attorney general. By contrast, President Obama made only feeble effort to get Justice Ginsburg to step down. Compare President Trump. He helped lure Anthony Kennedy off the bench by naming his favorite clerk, Brett Kavanaugh, as Kennedy's replacement. Is a party that can't protect the interests of its core voters worthy of their loyalty? That's the question, I think, more and more voters are going to be asking, especially black women voters, 93% of whom voted for uh, Biden. Now their voting rights are on the line in the southern states and their uh, abortion rights are on the line in the same places and they'll be forced to endure a kind of womb slavery, bearing children in life-threatening pregnancies, black women being three times more likely to die in childbirth as white women. You know, Black women and all women who hope liberals would protect their reproductive rights might argue with Robert Frost's comment, might agree with it. A liberal is a man too broad-minded to take his own side in a quarrel. Hmm. So, Professor Oberman, let me turn to you here. It sounds like Jack is laying out uh, a decades-long, what he sees as a decades-long failure by by Democrats to— um, advocate, push, and prepare essentially for the moment um, that that the the nation finds itself in now. Again, sticking with this domestic context for a second, what do you make of that? I mean, all due respect, I think that the 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 idea of framing abortion as a narrow issue of rights really misses the reality for the bulk of women in this country. Half of all U.S. abortions go to folks living below the poverty line, the bottom 13% of the country. These are folks trying to raise a child on less than $14,000 a year. Our failing is far more than just 
the question of access to legal abortion, because for those folks, it doesn't really feel like a big choice that they have, like a fundamental right that they have. I mean, they're having an abortion because they have no other choice. So the failing is a stripping away of any sort of safety net that would make it possible for them to choose to have a second child. And I say second child because 60% of all U.S. abortions go to people who already have one child. So while I agree with Jack that there's a failing here, the failing is really on a far grander scale than that of simply having failing, failed to stock the Supreme Court or to, to watch the federal judiciary as judge after judge was put, appointed to a lifetime appointment by being vetted first by the Federalist Society to ensure that they would be willing to strike down Roe v. Wade. Mm. Point taken uh, on that. But uh, I'm going to stick with focusing on the political aspect right now, um, uh, Jack and Professor Oberman, mainly because it's exactly in those places where we're seeing, um, you know, institutional change that's going to produce and has been producing, as we've seen at the state level, uh, the rolling back of access, if not, if we don't want to call if we want to call it that versus uh, the right to the access to a, to a safe abortion. Professor Oberman, let me just ask you, what do you make of that in light of those global statistics that I mentioned earlier? I mean, is the U.S. really, uh, at, at an institutional level, out of step with how much of the rest of the world is moving? Oh, for sure. I mean, we're, we're way out of step in terms of where we're going with the law uh, on, on abortion, Uh I mean, I think it's partly the result of having fought a war as if it, as if the clock was set 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. So we fight in these abstractions, you know, the idea that there's abortionists, the abortion doctors who need to be taken down in a world in which, you know, abortion legal or otherwise is, is, is just increasingly a matter of taking abortion medicines rather than the, a doctor in the back alley, right? So the scare tactics on both sides are, are well out of step with uh, with where we are in this century. Um, you know, my sense is that we just haven't, on either side, bothered to think with great clarity about what changes and what doesn't change when abortion is right. illegal. Right. So, Jack, pick up on that, because I know this is something that you've mentioned to, before, too, that in a sense, um, the political battles and also, I would say, the national conversation um, you know, as advanced through the media about abortion um, does seem to have parts of it that have been that felt frozen in time in 1973. Well, I think that's right. And another thing that's been frozen since then, I think, is a, a kind of complacency on the part of abortion rights advocates, you know, the, a, a sort of confidence that they didn't have to win the political battle. They had won the court. And, and as everyone has pointed out, that was a precarious win and always subject to uh, the rhythms of presidential politics and the vagaries of retirements, deaths, uh, just, just, just sheer bad, you know, something like the blockade of Merrick Garland, unheard of events, so contingent events. Uh, but, but within, within that, uh, I, I think a kind of complacency about, well, it's settled. We don't have to worry about it. The Democrats have never been able to mobilize on the issue, I think, because Roe was settled, as opposed to 
what we're going to learn about in Latin America, mm-hmm. where people did mobilize. Mm-hmm. They they went out in the streets, not here. Yeah. So so Jack's going to listen along with us uh, through the middle segment of the show as we do focus on Latin America. And Professor Oberman, we've got about 30-ish seconds before our first break here. Can you tell us why you think it's useful to look at Latin America today regarding uh, the discussion of uh, uh, around abortion versus let's say, pre-Row USA? Yeah, two reasons. First of all, Latin America is home to the world's strictest abortion bans um, these days in Central America, El Salvador, where I've spent a lot of time doing work, Nicaragua. Um, But there are also countries that went from strict bans, like in Chile, to countries that have liberalized. And so what we learn is not just what happens when it's illegal, but also what it took for folks on the ground to move the law from a ban to a, a, a regime change where abortion rights are honored. Okay, so when we come back, we're going to take a look at exactly how that happens. So Michelle Oberman, stand by. Jack, hang in there, too. We're talking about why the United States is moving in the opposite direction from much of the rest of the world regarding access to abortions. Uh, and we will be focusing on what's been changing in Latin America when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we're taking a look at why the United States is moving in the opposite direction of much of the rest of the world regarding abortion access. And we're going to focus specifically right now on Latin America because the historically conservative and Catholic part of the world has actually been undergoing several significant changes regarding uh, access to abortion in some of the, the biggest countries in Latin America. Colombia, as I mentioned earlier, is the latest one. In February of this year, just a couple of months ago, the Colombian Supreme Court delivered a 5-4 ruling making abortion legal until 24 weeks of pregnancy. It essentially decriminalized abortion, which had been extremely restricted in Colombia for decades prior to that. And Judge Alberto Rojas Rios, who co-wrote the ruling in favor of decriminalization, he called the decision, quote, a symbol of the internal fight for women's freedom. Now, that ruling was the result of a court case brought by a group called Causa Justa, or the Just Cause Movement, a coalition of abortion rights groups. Catalina Martinez Corral is regional director for Latin America and the Caribbean at the Center for Reproductive Rights in Bogota. She's one of Causa Justa's leaders. In Colombia, since 2006, we had a, a decriminalization of abortion under some grounds, 
only, for example, when the life or health of the woman was in danger or when the pregnancy was the result of a rape or when the fetus had a, a fatal malformation. And what we wanted to do in Colombia with the Causa Justa movement was to be able to uh, liberalize abortion and, and to really decriminalize abortion, actually. What we were looking for was uh, the total elimination of abortion from the penal code. This was, uh, of course, a legal fight, but it was also a social fight. Recognizing that it was a social fight in Colombia was important to Causa Justa. And Catalina says, therefore, they focused on reducing the taboo around discussing abortion and pushed to get it into the mainstream conversation. We wanted really to create a, a momentum in the country. And during the two years that the litigation uh, was held, we were also uh, doing a lot of mobilizations. We took the streets. We did several events. We we created um, videos for social media with actors very well-known and celebrities very well-known in the country, like to really fight a stigma around abortion to explain why it is important, like to continue advancing in the recognition of this right and to really be able to um, explain and create support in general for the topic. Catalina also says Colombian activists knew that a public campaign would sway the court. So that connection there between the social fight and the legal fight, because, of course, the court is the place the decision would ultimately be made. Even if judges, of course, are are deciding this decision, uh, taking into consideration law and and and, and impartiality and 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 and. and following their their role as judges, I think it was important for them as well to understand that the society was understanding this subject and was prepared also for this new step in the recognition of our rights. Now, newly won social changes can seem fragile or even Hard-fought older social changes can also seem fragile as well, but Catalina believes that the expansion of abortion access put into effect by the Colombian High Court's ruling is not likely to be reversed anytime soon. We don't see a, a, that a retrogression is possible in the country in the near future. The decision of the court has immediate effects. But of course, the Congress or the Ministry of Health will play a very important role in creating a, an integral policy on sexual and reproductive health services. But the right to abortion is already recognized and it is impossible in the near future to return what the court has already decided. That's Catalina Martinez Corral, one of Causa Justa's leaders in Bogota. I'm joined today by Michelle Oberman. She's a professor of law at Santa Clara University and author of Her Body, Our Laws on the Front Lines of the Abortion War from El Salvador to Oklahoma. And joining us now as well is Cora Fernandez Anderson, assistant professor of comparative politics at Mount Holyoke College and author of Fighting for Abortion Rights in Latin America, Social Movements, State Allies and Institutions. Professor Anderson, welcome to you. Thank you for having me. So first of all, let's let's uh, understand a little bit more about what just happened in Colombia. How far back would you um, say that the current um, activism around expanding abortion rights in Colombia, how far back does that date? 
Well, usually these things don't happen, you know, from one day to the other. Um, activism is um, uh, an activity that takes time. It's usually decades on the making. Um, just thinking not only about the case of Colombia, but in general, thinking about Latin America as a region, um, it was rare that there was like large activism before the process of democratization that happened, you know, in the 1980s and 90s. So before the region was faced with either civil wars or, mm. or military dictatorship, so there was no place for activism for reproductive rights at that point when we are seeing some of the northern countries going through, you know, feminist mobilization. So it took democracy to come back for feminists to be able to start organizing and voicing um, their their demands. Uh, so I would say mostly, um, uh, you know, in the case of Latin America as a whole, it starts in the 80s and the 90s with small um, mobilizations, uh, small groups. But I would say after the year 2000 is when we're starting seeing uh, the growth of these uh, movements. Okay, that is absolutely fascinating because we just did a show a few days ago about how the reduction of uh, rights for women um, oftentimes is a harbinger of democracy backsliding. And you're talking about democracy needing to be stable for um, women to be able to advocate uh, for reproductive rights. So I'm, I'm going to come back to that later. But so, so tell me then, I mean, you heard Catalina uh, Martinez-Corral there just a second ago. Um, tell me, tell me more about how how things catalyzed in, in Colombia. First of all, how how was the um, uh, the court case that eventually made it to um, the Colombian Constitutional Court? How did it arrive there? Yeah, so um, in the case of Colombia, you know, activists, um, you know, in, in general, in all the countries, you know, activists really study um, the political situation. You know, they take their time and they identify, okay, where is it that we might have possible allies? So if it is in the courts, you know, based on like previous rulings and knowing, you know, the the, the rulings of, of each of the judges, they might start, you know, seeing, can we have a majority in favor of this position? And then, you know, be ready to present a case. Because obviously, you know, you have to study, but because like a ruling that goes against your particular demand, we know, you know, how, how, how it can, you know, be very damaging and very hard to revert. Um, so this is what, you know, Colombian activists did. In other countries uh, in Latin America, you know, they thought, well, the Supreme Court is not the place to go. Mm. It's Congress. So, for example, um, I have studied very much in depth the, the legalization of abortion in Argentina. And that is, you know, the, the, the activists, what they did was try to build a multi-party coalition because there was no like uh, particular party that was either in favor or against abortion. Most of the political parties were divided around this issue. They started creating this alliance between those that were in favor within all the each of the political parties. And even though it took time, it took around like 15 years. Um, and that's what I, what I was referring to uh -huh. in my previous comment. This is like, a, you know, an everyday uh, struggle and work um, to, to build this. Um, after a while, they were able to gain enough support in Congress. So they chose to, they chose to, to go through Congress mm -hmm. because that was um, uh, more likely to succeed. And, and the cases of Argentina, that was the case in December of 2020. Uh, Professor Oberman, I appreciate your patience here. What do you what do you see uh, again in in Colombia's story? Just because it's it's the most recent one, and it's a fascinating counterpoint to what happened just uh, you know a couple of months later regarding the U.S. draft decision. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, it's funny because I, 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 you know, part of me as an American living in this moment just wants to take a victory lap and and just imagine that we can be in that place. But what I'm actually hearing is a a, a, a battle fought on multiple fronts to center the lived experiences of those who have abortions and those who love people who have abortions. And so by sort of centering the impact of the most vulnerable and then articulating a strategy where abortion gets talked about in concrete terms in the public square, uh, and then having skilled people sort of running on multiple fronts, a movement that is poised at changing the law, you can actually hope to make that change. And when I think about as a as a as an American where we've fallen down, it's been in allowing the the battle over abortion to be fought in abstractions. Mm. I mean, choice doesn't have a face. Mm. Well, so Professor Anderson, then pick up on that because. Um, what uh, we heard a, a moment ago from, uh, again, from Catalina Martinez Corral was that part of what um, activists in Colombia sought to do is, is exactly what Michelle Oberman is talking about is not happening here in the United States, right? And that is uh, uh, not have the discussion around abortion be an abstraction, reduce the taboo around it, create, put it into the mainstream conversation in Colombia. How much do you think that made a difference um, in in the public's attitude toward uh, abortion there? Yeah, I think that was very significant. And this is something to think through how the movement organizes like a multi-layered strategy. They have different goals. Definitely one is, you know, raising consciousness about the issue of, of abortion and destigmatizing it in a region in Latin America that, you know, it, it, it had a very heavy stigma and taboo. Um, I, you know, grew up in, in Argentina and I can say, you know, um, that this was a non, you know, an issue that you would never talk about, um, despite the fact that obviously abortions and illegal abortions were happening. So the movement had to have these different layers of, yes, we want to, you know, push for legal reform, but also we need society to understand the, the relevance of, of this issue. And the the fighting, you know, and pushing for destigmatization uh, was definitely a priority. And that's why I feel that in many of these countries, that was like the, the fight that needed to be won first. You know, that's why we talk about like the social decriminalization of abortion, mm. that when society starts talking about it, start facing that this is a real need, that what are the consequences of illegality of, you know, the the, the health and um, uh, consequences for uh, those that attempt illegal abortions, that many of them will die, that this affects mostly the most vulnerable population. So once we start having this conversation, uh, people can open their minds and uh, start supporting this demand. And then there's like a larger possibility for legal reform. Mm. You know, um, I, I will admit that uh, the United States often has a very uh, you know, facile conception of, of Latin America, right? I mean, I used it at the beginning of this show, just sort of using that broad brush of saying historically conservative Catholic Latin America. Um, facile though it may be, that is how uh, Americans often talk about our, our our neighbors to the south. And I have to admit, that's why I was quite surprised to see uh, the support for um, abortion access with, with you know, some conditions and restrictions around it in Colombia being as high as it was, almost ex- identical to what it is here in the United States. Has Is that a fundamental change in public opinion in places like Colombia, Argentina, Mexico, or has that... Um, 
has that been a, a, a change um, based on what we thought was a conservative Catholic culture? I think there is. I think okay. these societies are, are are going through a deep change, and I can track it back to the emergence of, of feminist movements. I think Latin America, and particularly the countries that that you mentioned, um, are going through uh, a feminist revolution. Um, the movements are very strong. They manage to really bring this feminist perspective of understanding these issues from this perspective to how the media is covering these issues to, you know, conversations among family about it, uh, schools, and particularly the younger generations are very attracted to to this, uh, you know, this social um, justice struggle. Uh-huh. Well, of course, though, we have to be clear in saying that this is not this is far from universal across Latin America. I mean, we're talking about Argentina, Mexico, uh, Colombia, and a couple of others. But you know, meanwhile, in El Salvador, uh, there are very strict anti-abortion laws continuing to be in place. And Professor Obermann mentioned uh, Nicaragua as well. And in fact, in El Salvador, women um, can serve decades-long prison sentences for homicide uh, after having uh, an abortion. And El Salvador's president, Nayib Bukele, uh, here takes a very conservative view uh, about abortion. So he says, I'm not in favor of abortion, and I think that in the end, in the future, one day, we are going to realize that it is a great genocide that is being committed with abortions. Uh, Michelle Oberman, you've written a law about, I mean, excuse me, a book about El Salvador. Um, tell me about sort of the the opposite end of the spectrum that we see in places like that. Um so in El Salvador, starting in 1998, the country banned abortion under all circumstances. There's not even an exception to save the life of the pregnant woman. And when I started going there in 2009, the the the, the movement um, to change the law was really just getting started. In fact, I, I went as an observer to a joint conference with Salvadoran and Nicaraguan doctors and lawyers who had gathered just to try to figure out what was happening on the ground as a result of the ban. Uh, and what I learned over the over the ensuing years was was really quite stunning. Um, and, and so I, I'm happy to talk in detail about all the things that go wrong when abortion is completely banned. But I also want to just tie my comments to um, Professor Fernandez um, Anderson's comments, which is to say this is a decades-long movement. And so during the time since 2009 when I started going, things have changed a lot on the ground. And there's a sense that change will be forthcoming. It just isn't clear how soon that'll be. Um, and uh, among among the tiny things that have changed, I remember that first year when I went to the conference, um, there was no way to really publicize on a campus that you were going to have an open discussion about abortion. Mm-hmm. And so activists, one morning at 9 o'clock, put posters around the one of the leading campuses in the center of um, San Salvador, the capital, and then had a conference at 9 o'clock at, or at, at, noon, at noon that same day, three hours later, and drew people from all over the campus coming 
and running to the room to hear what doctors and lawyers had to say about the consequences of El Salvador's ban. And in the years since then, there's been street theater, there have been a series of, of really prominent lawsuits, there have been victories in the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. There's a sense of people talking about the ban in a whole different way in the public square. There's even a radio station in which they're constantly putting on programming related to women's lives and, and women's rights and the and the downstream negative consequences of the ban. Oh, interesting. Okay, so Michelle Oberman and Cora Fernandez-Anderson, we have to take that quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about what has been changing uh, in Latin America, and then take that and refocus uh, on lessons to be learned here in the United States. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. Hi, On Point listeners. I'm poet and author Shinyi Pai. As you celebrate Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month, I invite you to listen to the 10,000 Things podcast from KUOW and the NPR Network. 10,000 Things is a podcast about modern artifacts of Asian American life, ordinary objects that tell extraordinary stories and reveal something profound about the experience of being Asian in America. Find 10,000 Things from KUOW and the NPR Network wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're talking about why the United States is moving in the opposite direction from much of the rest of the world regarding abortion rights. And we're focusing on the changes that have been happening as a counterpoint in some of the largest countries in Latin America over the past few years and the expansion of abortion access there. I'm joined today by Michelle Oberman, who's a professor of law at Santa Clara University and author of Her Body, Our Laws on the Front Lines of the Abortion War from El Salvador to Oklahoma. And Cora Fernandez-Anderson joins us as well. She's an assistant professor of comparative politics at Mount Holyoke College and author of Fighting for Abortion Rights in Latin America, Social Movements, State Allies and Institutions. And in a few minutes, we'll be bringing back Jack Beatty, our on-point news analyst. But Professor uh, Anderson, there's a couple uh, more things I'd like to understand about um, understanding the direction of change in certain Latin American countries. Um, Argentina, it was it was last year that became the largest nation in Latin America to, to legalize abortion. And the symbol of the the women's the, of the, the movement there in Argentina was the green handkerchief. Is that right? Yes, that is right. And can you tell us a little bit about uh, what that symbol meant? 
Yeah, so um, as I was saying, the, the movement needed to become visible. Um, they needed, they wanted to raise consciousness to start this conversation. So they created this um, green um, handkerchief that people initially wore, you know, on top of their heads. Um, and the origin of that is just like um, the, the white handkerchiefs that the mothers of Plaza de Mayo uh. Uh, used to wear. Um, that was like the main human rights movement that fought against the military dictatorship and demanded, you know, for um, uh, the the appearance of those uh, their children that had been you know um, mostly you know killed tortured and disappeared um, during the the dictatorship, so the human rights movement has been very strong in Argentina, and um, they wanted to tie you know this issue of abortion being also an issue of human rights, and they picked up on this idea of the handkerchief. Also, you know they changed the 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 color to uh, a green color. And ever since, you know, that have made the movement very visible because initially the, the, the handkerchief was only used in demonstrations, but then people took that handkerchief to everyday life. So people, for example, uh, high school students like tied to their backpacks, you know, people wear it in their wrists, um, uh, on their necks. So you would be walking around, you know, any place in Argentina and you would be able to identify all your allies uh, because people were wearing this on on. on their daily lives and this was growing and growing like at some point nobody could even find one of those to wear because um, um, of how many people okay. we are picking up on this and and that was yeah very very a very good way of making the movement visible and mm -hmm. showing how much support there was for legalization of abortion and I imagine that it carried a lot of power because of what you just said that it was uh sort of the continuation of a symbol that already had very deep moral and historical resonance for the Argentine people with the mothers of the disappeared, right? Exactly. Okay. So that's when I feel when we're thinking of lessons maybe for the U.S., you know, that's the that movements have to think through. Okay, what symbols, what frames will resonate with the American people in understanding, you know, the relevance of the issue of abortion um, in 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 Latin America uh, movements defined abortion, for example, as an issue of democracy. Also, just saying, well, all our countries struggle so much for democracy, but women were left without being full citizens if abortion is not a right. You know, this is an issue of social justice. You know, the most vulnerable in our countries are the ones that suffer and die or are left with health problems because of illegal abortions. So I think, you know, in the U.S. we have to find, okay, what is the frame that is going to really bring everybody together to uh, demand that, you know, this right is protected and kept for all of us. Okay, so one last question there, because we've talked about the social frame quite a lot. We haven't talked as much about the legislative one. Uh, I'll probably save that for another day. But I want to uh, focus once again on what happened in some of the courts um, in, in some of these countries, because, again, to to repeat what you said earlier, Professor Anderson, in some places it was a legislative change. In others, Mexico, uh, Colombia, um, there were rulings in the court systems. Now, on what basis did uh, the, the the rulings come? I mean, I'm seeing here that um, in Colombia there was a, a, an argument that said that criminalizing abortion violated rights protected by the Colombian constitution, including the right to human dignity, freedom, and equality. So were there very specific things in the constitutions of Colombia, Mexico, etc., which um, uh, even if the word abortion wasn't written in the constitution, as it's not in the U.S. one, 
um, that uh, that that judges felt um, protected uh, access to abortion. Yeah, you know, there are many basic rights that can be used. And that also speaks to like how limited, you know, the, the, the framing of Roe has been in the US only reduced to the right to privacy. When we see, you know, these court rulings are talking about that criminalizing abortion violates the right to health, you know, that um, that violates women's equality, you know, that violates the existence of a secular state. So there's like arguments that go, you know, beyond just like a limited uh, right uh, to privacy that I think are important. The other thing that in Latin America has been helping is that many countries have either um, had constitutional reforms or incorporated international human rights treaties to their constitutions. Um, so many of these, you know, basic rights of, you know, access to health, access to the latest medical developments and technology that are present in many of the international human rights treaties are now considered constitutional rights. Um, so that has expanded um, also the rights that are uh, considered uh, constitutional, and that has made it possible for many courts to use these uh, to protect the right to abortion. Well, Cora Fernandez-Anderson, assistant professor of comparative politics at Mount Holyoke College and author of Fighting for Abortion Rights in Latin America, Social Movements, State Allies, and Institutions. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Okay, Michelle Oberman, let me turn back to you now. First of all, pick up on what Professor Anderson was just saying, because she's pointing out an obvious major difference between many countries, dozens and dozens of them around the world and the United States, in that their constitutions are younger, and they've adopted other international provisions that the United States has not, for as long as there is going to be a legal battle. Uh, over abortion access in in this country, how much does that matter? Well, I, I think the strategy that's been interesting there is that they've taken advantage of whatever tools they have at their disposal mm-hmm. to tell a thicker truth about women's lives and the role of abortion in them and what happens under abortion bans. So it's not that the treaties in and of themselves were indispensable. It's that the advocates used the tools at their disposal. So, for example, in December of this year, there was a case from El Salvador uh, involving a woman um, who's no longer alive named Manuela, who'd been serving a 30-year sentence related to an abortion crime in El Salvador. Um, she ultimately died because in in prison she got terrible health care. They didn't diagnose cancer, and she died of the cancer. But the lawyers on her behalf brought a case to the Inter-American Court arguing not malpractice against the prison, not wrongful conviction narrowly on the grounds of abortion, in, in, in which you know, it really was. She had an obstetrical emergency. But instead, they argued gender discrimination and were able to show how from the moment that she was brought to the hospital hemorrhaging, the impact of the abortion ban was discriminatory in a way that would not have affected a man coming to an emergency room. She mm-hmm. became a suspect because of the abortion ban in a way that was intimately tied to her gender. And I think for U.S. lawyers looking to uh, articulate strategies in response to the forthcoming bans, we have to take a page from their book. We have tools at the ready, even if we're not signatories to the same inter-American treaties. Okay. Jack Beatty, On Point News analyst who's been listening along here. Jack, come on back into the conversation. Um, Because... 
There's actually been a lot that uh, has been quite eye-opening in the past half hour. But first of all, I know you're going to have something to say about this. When Cora Fernandez-Anderson a few minutes ago said that in order for uh, women's rights to be expanded in several Latin American countries, what first had to happen is that democracy had to come back in those countries. She's talking about the you know the severe disruption, wars, political upheaval, um, authoritarians that that uh, ruled over uh, Latin America. Yes, indeed, with some U.S. help for for decades there, and that these changes couldn't have come until you know after uh, the the 80s and 90s when things settled down democratically. What do you make of that? Well, of course, uh, that's frightening to an American because democracy is receding here. Right? <laughs> we may have our, our – it could be the next election would be the last election. Uh, the Republican Party may not accept losing. I mean, that it may be over for American elections. So we can take no comfort from that uh, picture of evolution. We're, we're, we're moving backwards <laughs> uh, in, in, in abortion rights and in democracy. And, you know, the, the thing I catch on to is something a Mexican activist reacting to the Alito opinion said, you guys need to take to the streets. We have never left the streets. Unless something like that happens, unless a mass movement can be galvanized quickly, we're facing a nationalization, essentially a nationwide ban on abortion. Mitch McConnell over the weekend laid it on the line. If the Republicans have the Congress and the presidency in 2025, they may well move to ban abortion nationwide. Mm. So... Professor Oberman, then let's let's again take your examination and scholarship of places where that is the truth. Uh, you know, in in El Salvador again, um, what what impact did does the did the, does the criminalization or the possibility again in El Salvador of prosecution of arrest and prosecution for having an abortion? What impact did it actually does it actually have uh, on the on the lives of women? Yeah. So thanks for asking that question, Megna, because it's astonishing, the impact. It's not what you'd expect. In El Salvador, under that complete ban, one in three pregnancies, one in three pregnancies ends in abortion. Abortion medications are available widely on every street in the country, in Nicaragua, in countries throughout the world where abortion is illegal. Access to abortion medicines make abortion accessible and and safe and and really surprisingly affordable. It's it's not like it's a a a, a cakewalk when something is illegal. There's always complications around access and there's always a certain amount of stigma and fear. But you you're not able to make abortion disappear simply by making it illegal and that's because people have abortions when they cannot afford to have children. And in El Salvador, with the vast majority of the population living on less than $5 a day, people can't afford to have more children. So those who would celebrate the the coming era of abortion bans in this country would do well to pay attention to the forces that drive abortion. Mm. But the... um... The it sounds like it's relatively easy to get abortion medication in El Salvador. How does that compare to the availability of such medications here in the United States? 
Well, here in the United States, we're already seeing signs of a burgeoning market in abortion medicines. There's uh, there's websites like Aid Access, like Plan C, like Women on Waves, like Hey Jane. There's, I mean, those are just to name a few that one can use to order online. Anybody with a debit card and an address can order online the drugs that they would need to end an unwanted pregnancy. Uh, there's a lot of talk about crackdowns on people who ordered um, abortion medicines and a lot of scaremongering by um, those who are really quite exuberant about the bans and who think that somehow they're going to make abortion disappear. I'd have them look for just a little bit at our opiate epidemic to, to get a sense of how well we can do to shut down a market when there's a high demand for it. And then I'd say, wow, we need to look at countries around the world that have the lowest abortion rates and figure out what they're doing. And what they're doing is that they have a robust safety net, one that provides easy access to contraception. The biggest driver of, of abortion, of course, is, is getting pregnant when you don't want to have a child. Um, half of those pregnancies, when you don't want to get a child, when you, an unintended pregnancy, it's called, half of those end in abortions. So if we're serious about wanting abortion to go away, we got to take a page from the book of, of countries that really want babies to be born. Mm. Robust safety nets, child allowances, child tax allowances, paid parental leave, subsidized daycare. Right? I mean, things that a country that wants babies does. Our country isn't a country that really wants babies born. I mean, I'm not exactly sure what the folks who love abortion bans want, but it it really is the case that this country is a country that's quite hostile to to babies. Hmm. Jack, what do you, what's your response to what uh, Professor Oberman has been saying just now? Uh, well, you can certainly argue that. I mean, you know, the, who cares what happens to them once they're born? Uh, that seems to be the attitude. The Mississippi governor was on television the other day pretty much saying that. But, you know, relying on medicine, uh, we heard a doctor over the weekend say this can be very dangerous. It can be for, for some women because it results in incomplete abortions and complications beyond that. The anti-abortion anti rights movement isn't stopping. You know, before the Civil War, <laughs> uh, the mail was censored to the South. You couldn't send down, you know, northern newspapers advocating abolition couldn't reach them. There was a gag rule in Congress about even raising the issue of, uh, of slavery. The point is, if the Republicans get the government again, they're going to be under pressure to do that, to go after the medicine, to go after the mail, to do all of that, to shut down abortion. Why? Because the people who are pushing it see it as murder, and the people who are going to be uh, the victims of it, rightly, it seems to me, as Margaret Atwood over the weekend said, see it, see the, the you know, she said, women who can't make their own decisions about having a baby are enslaved because the state claims ownership of their bodies. Those are the, those are the, that's the crux coming up. Well, Professor Oberman, we have about 30 seconds left. I'm going to give you the last word. What's the takeaway that you want listeners who've been with us this hour to sort of to, to walk away with about the counterpoint in Latin America? Look, if women all over the world can figure it out, there's no reason to believe that American women will be the only ones that can't figure out what to do when the law says you can't control whether and when you have a child. We, we, it, they just they can't do this to us. We'll, well figure it out. <laughs> well, as we've also heard, though, the figuring it out uh, is a, a, an effort of of years, if not decades. So Michelle Oberman, professor of law at Santa Clara University, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. And Jack Beatty, On Point News Analyst, thank you always as well. 
Thank you, Magna. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. <laughs>